Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. I know it was only a week ago, but man, what a week it's been. Election Day came and went without a clear winner in the race for president. After days of counting, Joe Biden is now president-elect. But Donald Trump won Florida's electoral votes, and across the state, Democrats lost races for Congress and the state legislature. More than 60% of voters supported a constitutional amendment to raise the state's minimum wage to $15 an hour. So what do we make of Florida's new political reality? And how do voters feel? Joining me via Zoom is Tara Newsom, a political analyst and professor at St. Petersburg College. And also joining the conversation are Phyllis Young of St. Petersburg and Michael Weinbaum of Winter Garden. WUSF reporters interviewed them ahead of the election as part of an audio diary series looking at voters along the I-4 corridor. Also, I should note that we recorded this interview on Friday before media outlets called the presidential race for Joe Biden. Tara, I want to start with you. Now that we're on the other side of, of the election for you, what, what do you think is the big takeaway from, from the 2020 election here in Florida? Well, first off, I think that the I-4 corridor remains a predictor of presidential elections. I don't think it's necessarily a predictor of Florida elections. And so I think that that's a, a unique kind of application of an area of the state that we traditionally monitor as sort of the heartbeat of even Florida. But I do think it, the takeaway is that Florida having the I-4 corridor going towards Biden, but not nearly as much in the Orange County and having these micro-targeting to the I-4 corridor shows us that you can have a state like Florida still perform for Democrats in certain pocket areas, but if you refine micro-targeting campaigning, the rest of the state can really, can really turn on you. And so I think this is a, what we would call a critical election because it's teaching us about how important it is to monitor the migratory patterns of people in the country. So in the I-4 quarter, we have lots of influx of people from the Midwest, from New York. We have high degrees of socioeconomic status, high degrees of access to education, um, a more robust economy. And so you saw, you saw that and it's coming out for Biden. Now, Orange County didn't come out as much for Biden, and we can talk about that in a minute. But when you look at the state and how the rest of the state went predominantly red, it really shows the difference between uh, how those migratory patterns affect voting outcomes and, and how rural parts of the country sort of dig deep into sort of old standards of how they vote. So I think what this election really showed me is that you really need to pay attention to how the country is migrating, the socioeconomic status, the access to education, and what that will mean towards uh, election outcomes. And the other piece that I really took away from is there's been an enormous amount of discussion about not treating the Latino vote monolithically. And we've been talking about that, uh, I think across the, the country, we've been trying to be mindful that Latino Americans are the second largest voting block. But it's interesting to make sure that you don't look at Florida as the largest representation of Latinos. Cuban Americans are only 6%, Venezuelans are only less than 1% of Latino Americans. 
uh, the, over 60% of Latino Americans are Mexican Americans. And we can see them performing way differently in other states than they did in Florida. And so I don't think you can necessarily look at the heartbeat of Latino Americans vote patterns by looking at Florida. And that was a really big takeaway for me. So I know when I talked to you, um, you talked pretty passionately about how important voting is for you. Now that the 2020 election is over and you cast your vote, how, how do you feel? You know how important it was? I had my 18-year-old son drive home from Gainesville to St. Pete and wake up at 6 a.m. and sit to be election uh, protection workers because I really believe in the sanctity of the right to vote and that everyone should have equal access. And I feel very good about it. I feel like the voter turnout was was strong. And I absolutely believe in in the power of the vote, that every single person should have access to voting, and that the democratic process has been upheld. And I'm very proud of, you know, Pinellas County, of Florida, and of the greater um, America, because I think even though we're different in how we cast our votes, that the fact that we have integrity in the system, and that the system is coming out with a result, even though a few days later, you know, I think every one of us can say that, that we've, we've, we've contributed to a peaceful democratic process, and I'm very proud of that. Phyllis, I know when I talk to you, uh, you also talk pretty passionately about, about voting. How are you feeling now that you cast your ballot in this election? I'm, I'm happy that I cast my ballot because I do vote by mail, but I dropped it off at the courthouse downtown. And I felt, you know, I felt good about that. The day that I dropped it off, there were quite a few people there to vote, uh, to do the early vote. So I was excited, you know, just to see people out and voting. Michael, what about you? How do you feel about things after uh, casting your ballot? So I, I cast my ballot um, one of the first days that the supervisor of elections opened up to accept drop-offs of um, absentee ballots. I, I guess I had an absentee ballot and I dropped it off early. So they actually had a drive-through process. I was just really surprised how smooth it went. As soon as I drove in, there were signs explaining, you know, we know what you're here to do. Just drop off your ballot, turn over here. And I just rolled down my window, handed it off to them, saw them, put it in the box. Um, everyone was wearing masks. So they were, they were prepared. I felt great about that. Can I ask who you voted for for president? Sure. I voted for uh, Joe Biden. And what led you to that decision? I felt like in 2019, the things that the uh, House alleged Trump did that he did do those things and that they were perhaps not totally illegal, but serious violations of the of just the whole process of competing fairly in an election based on your ideas. If they had removed him and put Pence in place, I would have considered a vote for Pence, actually. Phyllis, I see the, the portrait of the Obamas uh, behind you there. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you voted for Joe Biden as well. Yes, I did. I did. And um, I feel good about that vote. Whatever the outcome may be, I feel good about the fact that I cast my vote. Couldn't see going any other way. What about what Michael said there about uh, you know, going back to the impeachment and the, and the accusations about President Trump? If, if Mike Pence were on the ballot, would you have considered uh, voting for him? Never. Uh, I would have voted for Joe Biden, uh, even so, because I, I just really feel that Donald Trump has done such a great disservice to this country and the things that the country really represents, a democracy. And for whatever reason, he has it all turned around and thinks it's all about him because he's the president. And that's just not the way the Constitution was written. What are you hoping for a Biden presidency? 
Well, the, the main thing for me right now is COVID uh, because I know several people who've gotten it. And this has been since the last time you and I talked. Family members, even uh, my nephew and his wife had to go to Nebraska uh, to bury her mother. And they all came back with COVID. Unfortunately for their family, all of them got sick. And then my a very good friend of mine, his father, his sister, and her husband and son, they all contracted it in the past week. And I, I just really think that at this point here in the United States, we really need to do something serious about COVID. Uh, get that vaccine going, um, make sure that everybody is wearing um, a mask or using hand sanitizer. And I think once something is done about COVID, job situations, I think that will improve because people will be able to go back to their respective uh, places of employment. Um, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that there will be some changes coming down related to how businesses operate right now during, the, during this pandemic because it's hurting everybody. And it doesn't matter whether or not you're in a red state, a blue state, or what have you, you're affected by it. Michael, uh, is COVID top of mind for you right now? I would say yes. The first order of business is, in my opinion, to have the kind of uh, relief bill that allows states to um, to put in more restrictive measures without worrying about you know leaving people destitute the way that unfortunately they've been worried about. I know that's been a big concern here in Florida with uh, a lot of the tourism-related businesses not getting the getting the help that they need to to sustain themselves while we we kind of get try to get through this. Uh, we've talked a lot about the presidential race so far, but were there? I'll start with you on this, uh, Phyllis. Were there any uh, races down the ballot that uh, that you were paying attention to? Oh, certainly, um, Charlie Crisp as senator and. Daryl Rusan, and I was also looking at our school board races. Renee Flowers won, but I didn't necessarily vote for her, but, you know, that's okay, too. And um, I was glad to see that Capri Edmonds won because I voted for her. And also for um, the amendments, I was really excited about the um, minimum wage. Definitely, I think that's a plus. Um, and also not only the minimum wage, but um, the taxes that go for the schools and the widows of veterans getting that homestead exemption. I, I was excited about um, those things. Michael, what, uh, what, what down ballot races were important to you? For, for me, the most important thing was, was actually Amendment 3. As I was very much for that. Um, as, I, as I look at, at what's been going on in this country and how polarized we are, um, I'm not sure that that's the best thing to cure it, but it was the only thing, you know, on the menu for this election, just to try to get people to come into the voting booth each time, whether it's a, the first round or the second round, each time I feel like people should be thinking about, you know, who is the best candidate, not necessarily who's the best Democrat or who's the best Republican. So I was, I was excited to vote for that, and I'm disappointed that it didn't pass. What about the minimum wage increase? Where did you, uh, where did you fall on that? Um, I, I earn significantly more than minimum wage. It does not affect me personally. Um, 
My wife is a small business owner. She pays her employees significantly more than minimum wage. So it wasn't going to affect us for a while, I guess. Uh, maybe there's like some second order effects that would come and affect things. So for me, it's only thinking about, well, how are people who are not so fortunate doing? And even as I think about that, it seems to me that the minimum wage should be set at the federal level. Um, it should be set by the same people who are like controlling the money supply and things of that nature. So I did vote no, even though I would be perhaps in favor of the federal government uh, changing the minimum wage. Well, that actually gets to my next question for Tara, because uh, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour nationally uh, was, a, was a, a plank in Joe Biden's platform. Uh, he ran ads saying that he supported it. He talked about it in his campaign speeches. The proposal to raise the minimum wage here in Florida passed with over 60% of the vote, but Biden himself as a candidate only got about 47% of the vote in Florida. So what does it say to you about that disconnect between this policy that's a part of his platform getting broad support, but Biden himself not being able to, to, to win the, the, the presidential race here in Florida? I can't express enough how much of an anomaly this critical election was for those of us that watched various elections. And it was an anomaly because you saw 60.8% of Floridians support minimum wage, but you saw that three to one for Donald Trump, right? We, in 2016, Donald Trump won Florida by 112,000 votes. In 2020, he, he won the state by well over 300,000 votes. And I think that disconnect or that anomaly can really be related to that micro messaging that occurred in the state of Florida. I think Florida will be watched for the next four years, not just because of maybe the I-4 quarter being a bellwether for presidential elections, but because of that micro messaging that was so significantly impactful on voter turnout. When you look at the messaging that was done by uh, the Trump campaign to go after um, Jewish Americans, Cuban Americans, Venezuelan Americans, um, the rural Americans, and how different the rural Americans perceive the economy as related to the more uh, city-based uh, Floridians. You really see that that um, amendment number is a response to that micro-messaging. And I think we're gonna be watching what that micro-messaging, how effective it was, and we're gonna see that utilized again four years from now. I think that's going to be the future of how we campaign. You're listening to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. We'll take a short break here and resume our conversation in just a moment. This is Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. We're talking about the aftermath of the 2020 election with two voters, Phyllis Young of St. Petersburg and Michael Weinbaum of Winter Garden. And also joining the conversation is St. Petersburg College professor and political analyst Tara Newsom. Uh, Tara, we're seeing a lot of talk right now about whether... Florida is truly a swing state, having gone for, for Trump twice, having uh, Republicans have almost total control of, of state government. Uh, when you look at a state, say, like, uh, like Georgia or Arizona, that were much more competitive in this election cycle, do you think over the coming decade that Florida is really going to be as competitive as it has been in the past? We just went through a census. It looks like we will be predicted to not only get one additional congressperson, but possibly a second congressional apportionment. So we would go from 27 to, uh, to 29, possibly. And I mention that because that means our population is going to boom. It's going to continue to grow. And it's been growing for decades, right? And as we have that growth, we continue to see the in influx of people from other states. And so as that influx happens, I think what you're going to see is the population centers are gonna to continue to perform 
for Democrats, but that you are going to see an even more polarization in the rural communities. And so I think it depends on where you see the, uh, the influx of population actually um, contributing. I think it also, you know, you can't predict future presidential elections necessarily on Donald Trump. He is a unique candidate with unique campaign strategies that we've never seen before. And so unless we have a, another candidate comes out and sort of has a platform or is a cult of personality, I don't think that this is necessarily a predictor of future elections. I do think that the migratory patterns that we're seeing on how Orange County and even Duval and um, even Seminole County went for, for Biden, I think that that shows to be very interesting because those are places that are having high growth, high influxes of individuals from other states. And I think that's gonna be telling because as we go forward, it's gonna be those that come to Florida that are gonna be changing the outcomes. Phyllis, do you think uh, Florida is still going to be a swing state in the years to come? Probably. And I think I agree with Tara on how the demographics are changing because of the migration of people from other places. And living, having been here all my life in St. Petersburg and just looking at how things have changed over the years and how people have migrated to this area. And not only that, what I look at is where are these people coming from? what type of backgrounds they have. And oftentimes, if they migrate, they're in more of the urban areas as opposed to um, the rural areas. And I think that says a lot too about how we as a state will need to make changes relative to that. For instance, my, my nephew and his wife, he had been in the military and a couple of years before he retired, he decided that he was going to move back here. His wife is from Nebraska. You know, most of her family, they live in Iowa and Nebraska. And their values are very different in terms of how they live in Nebraska as opposed to how we live here in Florida, you know? And I, I, I really think we have to look at, like I say, where the people are coming from in terms of how we make changes concerning how we do our elections. Michael, what about you? I mean, the, the Orlando area is, is, is growing like a weed as well. What do you think needs to happen there to, uh, to make sure that uh, all these people who are coming in from other places are able to live good lives? Um, I think we're doing a little bit of a better job in the Orlando area. We have, I, I see the counties here ha already have a structure to, to work together and, um, and build new toll roads in, in areas that are targeted for new development. I hope there's been a lot of projections of, of a lot of stuff being built kind of um, to the east of downtown Orlando. That wouldn't affect me. I'm, I'm over to the west. But there's parts of it that are bad. Like I, I am a little lucky. I, I'm not as affected, but I am concerned that there's, you know, I don't mind the development as long as the, you know, the roads are there first and there's a plan to get the new people, you know, in and out of the city center before you actually start filling those homes up with people. And um, I've seen positive signs here too of, um, you know, closer to the urban core, a lot more uh, higher density uh, developments being done. So that I think that'll really help alleviate the traffic that could happen. So I'm cautiously optimistic about uh, the population growth. As far as Florida staying a swing state as its population continues to grow, um, I have no idea. I feel like for about 10% of people, they, they take their party identity, you know, election by election and issue by issue. And it just depends on who the candidates are. That 
what, what I just said is true in a lot of states, but the 10% the of Florida that's maybe um, up for grabs each election, it ha they have very different concerns than that 10% of, say, Pennsylvania that's up for grabs every election. So, so I just couldn't speculate. Bradley, can I just chime in real fast? And sure. I was thinking about this this morning, and I was thinking about how geographically large Florida is. And it's not just geographically large, but it's, it's really both um, geographically uh, diverse and culturally diverse, right? We have epicenters, we have rural areas, we have different cultures. There's certainly a, a, a Miami culture compared to a, a Tampa Bay culture compared to a Panhandle culture. And I think as we all, you know, we're all citizens on this call, right? And so as I'm, as I'm listening to Michael and Phyllis and I'm thinking about what they're saying, I'm also weighing in the fact that the new, new folks that come to Florida, they're landing in different areas, but predominantly they're landing in those population centers that ran blue on this last election cycle. And I find that to be really interesting because if you watch it get bluer and bluer, you're gonna see the rural areas get redder and redder. And it's gonna to contribute to that polarization that we're experiencing. And that's what makes me nervous because as we develop our state and we continue to concentrate and become dense, that uh, those polarizations are gonna affect public policy. And you know, one thing that we haven't talked about yet is that the outcome of this election directed the next um, redistricting of the state of Florida. And of course, with Republicans holding the state legislature, all of these folks that are coming in with possibly more centrist ideas, right? That's kind of what we're seeing. We're seeing these more population centers be centrist, like what Michael really said, that, hey, I go election to election, I, I'm reasonable, I consider both sides of the story before I make my decision. We call that dealignment, you no longer align with parties. But what worries me is that as we get this influx of centrists, in our state legislature, do we have centrists? Or do we have fundamentalists who are representing the state and have a majority? And what will that mean towards democracy? And my worry is supported by what the state legislature did to dismantle amendment number four, which was enfranchising felons the right to vote. Now we're going to see what will they do to possibly put obstacles to the minimum wage and its, its uh, implementation. And of course, you know, what the hubbub was about with medicinal marijuana. All, and, and, and certainly the greatest piece of evidence that the state legislature is worried about direct democracy is their um, decision to put on the ballot constitutional amendment number four, which asked citizens to vote twice to, in order to really amend the state constitution, which quite frankly was offensive to most citizens. And that's why it didn't pass because we know our own minds and we know our own opinions. And if you ask us once and we vote, that should be good enough for our state legislature. So I really worry about the influx of centrists, but our, our fundamentalist type uh, state legislature that isn't necessarily interested in representing the interest of Floridians. We only have a few minutes left here. So I wanna give an opportunity uh, to all of you to ask questions of each other. Uh, Phyllis and uh, Michael, is there anything uh, the two of you are, are curious uh, to ask the other? Yeah, I, I know he said that he lived west of Orlando. Yes. Um, and I, I had the opportunity back in September to go up to Davenport. And it just blows my mind about how congested that area has gotten. Yes. And I just kind of wondered, you know, because you did make a comment about how you see them putting the roads in and, and doing things to the infrastructure. Right. I think Davenport's in, in Polk County, and I don't think they're part of um, 
the, the cooperation that takes place, I think it's between Seminole, Orange, and uh, Osceola counties to, to make sure the roads are in place. And I, and I have experience, I've been through Davenport and Poinciana, and it does seem uh, underserved in terms of roads. Can I ask Michael something? Yes, sure. Are you a, a no-party affiliate? Do you have a party affiliation? I'm actually a registered Republican. I'm, I was hoping to, uh, to take that away once Amendment 3 passed, but I would like to have the vote, right to vote in somebody's primary. I agree. And you need, unfortunately in Florida, you need a party affiliation to do that. Well, just to wrap up here, Tara, I want to wrap up with a question with you, and it's about polling, because there are a lot of conversations now about um, how off some of the polls were, both at a state level and nationally. Um, what do you think needs to change with polling to, uh, to make it more accurate? I throw my hands up on that question because once upon a time, polling was a science and now it's an art. And it's almost a guttural kind of instinct of what you think that snapshot of the electorate really means. I think we'd have to do a hell of a lot better job getting people that we, who we really wanna know the answers to to answer those polls because one of the things that was dramatically uh, evident with the Latino vote is that the very snapshot of the Latino vote that we wanted to get with our polls wasn't able to be captured because many folks either don't want to answer the polls, don't want to answer the questions, or prefer using a, uh, Spanish as a language. And so until we refine our polling, I believe that polling is truly an art now and less of a science. And I think that we're all, we all would do well to, to to hasten ourselves to not necessarily to use polls. Burn me once, it's my fault, burn me twice, you know, that kind of, that kind of idea. I won't be looking to polls to be answering any big questions about Florida in the future. Michael or uh, Phyllis, do either of you have any, uh, have any strong feelings about polls and especially the polls in this election? I don't really understand them. Uh, obviously, a lot more, a lot of people voted nationwide in 2020 who didn't vote in 2016. And I suspect, and the same thing was true in 2016, a lot of people nationwide voted in 2016 who had not voted in 2008, who had not voted in 2012, people of all ages. And I suspect that the polling is looking at the last cycle um, because it's the only data point they have and their, their, what their struggle is to figure out who those new voters are, who is, once the candidates are decided, the new candidates are out, you know, who, who is being persuaded to vote for the first time because of who the candidates are. Phyllis, you have any thoughts on polling? Um, I, I often wonder exactly how they come about the polling because I've been voting for a very long time and I don't think I've ever been contacted. And I think that's an atrocity in itself. <laughs> you know, for somebody who's constantly voting, why aren't you talking to that person? Why aren't you, or maybe because you can see, you know, what my record is. I don't know. I don't know. But I just wonder, you know, because I don't, I don't vote straight Democratic just because I'm a Democrat. You know, I look at the person. I look at the issues. And I make my decision based on that. I don't look at whether you're a Republican or uh, a Democrat or an independent. I'm just looking at basically who you are in terms of what I'm looking for, you know? So it's like, why aren't, you know, why haven't I been contacted for a poll? 
Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, I also that, have that I never been it. contacted for a poll. Yeah, it's a mystery who they. <laughs> I don't know who they contact, but it's. Just, <laughs> okay. it's who are they talking to? <laughs> All right. Who are the pollsters talking to? Well, uh, Tara, Michael, Phyllis, uh, this was a really great conversation. Uh, thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time to, uh, to join us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. Thank you, Bradley. You heard from St. Petersburg College professor Tara Newsom, also voters Phyllis Young of St. Petersburg and Michael Weinbaum of Winter Garden. Today's show was produced by Denora Prevost. If you missed part of it or want to listen again, you can find it at WUSFnews.org. I'm Bradley George. Thanks for listening to Florida Matters. Hope you'll join us again next week.